This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code Irish Times at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace's European Operations and Customer Service Office is located right here in Dublin. Squarespace, build it beautiful. You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview, perspectives on foreign affairs from the Irish Times network of foreign correspondents. I'm Patrick Smith. This week, in the wake of the massacres in Paris and Mali, we'll be looking at the apparently competing organisations responsible, ISIS and Al-Qaeda. I'll be talking to our Middle East analyst, Michael Jansen, about their respective appeal, their differences and what they share. From London and Brussels, we'll be hearing from our correspondents Dennis Staunton and Suzanne Lynch about what makes young Muslims join up and turn their backs on lifestyles and values that they apparently only recently enthusiastically embraced. And we'll discuss life under lockdown and the Commons debate on going to war in Syria. And we hear about the turbulent times in the Vatican as reforming Pope Francis engages with the conservative and some say corrupt civil service, the Curia, and also the wider church over his more inclusive, tolerant message that has brought such hope to reform-minded Catholics. But first to Michael Jansen. The attacks in Paris mark a significant shift in his the ISIS strategic approach towards attacks abroad on the West. In this, they seem to be aping al-Qaeda. The latter, in what has been described as a form of lethal one-upmanship, then attacked the hotel in Mali, killing 29 people. New York Times quotes one of their activists on Twitter suggesting that the Islamic State could learn a thing or two from the Mali attack. They're competing, but really they're the same. How do you see the differences? Are they important? The differences are mainly in leadership, competing leaderships. Um, uh, the Islamic State is an, it, it's a rebranding of al-Qaeda in Mesopotamia or al-Qaeda in Iraq. Uh, and this took place in 2013 uh, because uh, the official uh, brand of al-Qaeda in Syria, which is called Jabhat al-Nusra, had moved into Syria at the request of uh, the leadership of al-Qaeda in Mesopotamia and had been doing rather well, uh, particularly with uh, suicide bombings and car bombings. Um, so the leadership of al-Qaeda in Mesopotamia, which is headed by Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, uh, decided that it wanted to move into Syria, which was a fertile ground for expansion, and to um, take over from Nusra. And it, he tried to do this in the spring of 2013, and Nusra rejected the offer of a merger, and they became... Uh, rivals in Syria. They also uh, very often partner each other in operations, and um, they shift fighters around between the two, and they share arms and money uh, in certain circumstances, particularly south of Damascus in the Yamuk area. In terms of ideology, there is very little difference. Uh, Al-Qaeda in uh, Mesopotamia stuck with the ideology of Al-Qaeda Central, which uh, believes in um, actually overthrowing the Saudi monarchy, fighting for Palestine, and uh, fighting the West. 
Now, the thing is that the main difference, operational difference, is that um, Islamic State uh, is a, a movement which wants to take over territory, which Al-Qaeda has done to a certain extent, but not to the great extent that Islamic State has done. And Al-Qaeda also uh, tries not to declare a caliphate. It, it declares emirates wherever they have a group and a ruler. But it doesn't try to declare a caliphate because they say it's too early. And they both, they both organizations, I think, share a virulent hatred of Shias. But um, al-Qaeda's Ayman uh, al-Zawahari has called on the group's uh, own affiliates to avoid the, the sort of whole-scale killings that IS has been involved in, saying that they tarnish the movement and, and hinder recruiting. So there are sort of tactical differences there. Yes, there are tactical differences there. Um but uh, they're, you know, not very serious because both of them uh, do the same sort of thing. Uh, the Islamic State group is really a cult, more than Al-Qaeda is, I think, um, in the real Western sense of these kind of crazy cults that crop up from time to time in the Christian world. And um, it is also a far more brutal occupier than Al-Qaeda is. Uh, Al-Qaeda does chop off heads and torture and so on, but Islamic State specializes in this as a recruiting tool. One wouldn't think that one would want to try to join a movement which cuts off heads, but the extent of the disaffection amongst young Muslims in many countries, uh, including in Saudi Arabia, which is, of course, the main uh, source of cutting off heads in the world today. Um, uh, they, those people feel that they have to retaliate against the West, against the Western powers, against regional governments by terrorizing their populations. And the best way to do this is to abuse soldiers, civilians, foreigners. No. Where do each group have their main influences? Al-Qaeda, um, they claimed the Charlie Hebdo killing, for example, and they've, they're involved, as you said, in the Syrian uh, Nusra uh, front. Um, Boko Haram in Nigeria, Niger Yemen? Yemen, um, Sinai. Uh, they, they killed uh, five people in the town of El Arish, uh, two judges who were there supervising the uh, parliamentary elections and three policemen. Um, also, they are important in Syria in the northwest. Uh, Jabhat al-Nusra uh, is in charge of the coalition, uh, which is holding the province of Idlib. So they do have a territorial base. They have territorial bases in Libya. They also are present in North Africa, al-Qaeda, and Islamic State is also moving in to um, claim its own following and its own territory in areas where al-Qaeda has already established a presence, especially in Yemen. And, and in Libya, I think, too. Yes, in yeah. Libya. Yeah. And what's the situation in Pakistan and Afghanistan? 
Well, in Pakistan, uh, Islamic State is also moving into those areas, in both Pakistan and Afghanistan, and it has claimed some killings in uh, Bangladesh as well. So they are moving across all of the areas where al-Qaeda is present as, as its main competitor. Um, but as I say, the point is that the difference in terms of ideology is very, very small. But there must be some kind of different appeal to young people or to, to militants of one kind or another. Yes, the reason that um, Islamic State goes for these spectacular operations is that it is using them as a recruiting tool as well as a, a way to hit its various enemies, particularly the West and the, um, the Western powers which are opposing um, al-Qaeda and Islamic State on the ground in Syria and Iraq. I mean, after all, um, one has to take into consideration that the two of them are competing for the same uh, recruits, for the same money, and for the same weapons. And they have the similar um, objectives. Um, I think that, that there's a tendency rather too easily um, to talk about um, their killing as senseless and their, uh, them not having any rationale other than a sort of pathological love of, of, of killing. Um, but I think it's quite important, and one columnist in America writing today about it talks about the need to understand the positive energy that they, they can impart to to recruits um, and also the, the rationale between, behind the killing, which, which you've adverted to. Can you give us a sense of, of how they represent a positive force for many young people? Well, a lot of young people in the Arab world and elsewhere um, have uh, been forgotten. Uh, economic development hasn't taken them into account. Uh, this is true, particularly in Syria, where there was a drought and a lot of young uh, uh, farmers were left without any kind of support, and they congregated on the edges of the cities, and then they joined these groups, starting just with uh, groups of gunmen soon after the 2011 uh, unrest began in Syria. The same thing is true in Iraq. In Syria... Um, Climate change contributed a great deal to their situation because of the drought. Um, and this is true all across North Africa. Uh, this kind of uh, economic deprivation, lack of work, lack of hope, lack of identity uh, contributed greatly to the Algerian war in the 1990s, which uh, was between the government and the Islamic groups. And this is true in Egypt, and particularly in Sinai, which has been a neglected province. And uh, the population of Sinai is uh, somewhat different ethnically than the mainland part of Egypt. The Nilotic Egyptians and the Bedouin Egyptians of Sinai uh, differ completely in terms of ethnicity. And um, in Lebanon, for instance, you have... Uh, a lot of young men in the cities of Tripoli and Sidon, Sunnis, who are disaffected, and in the Palestinian camp in Aina Helway. So you have, as I said, a whole section of the society which is 
deprived, uh, disaffected, and angry. And uh, both uh, Al-Qaeda and Islamic State and similar groups give these people a feeling of identity and give them a, a feeling that they have some stature. And so they join these groups. And um, this is a very dangerous game because uh, they are attracting, of course, people from the Caucasus, from Western Europe, who are in exactly the same situation. Dennis, you've recently met uh, friends of three of the young men who uh, went off to fight for ISIS. What did they say he, he was li- they were like, and what drove them? Uh, talented kids um, at school, engaged in, in all forms of, of uh, Western decadent life, Yes, they were in the in the cases of the people I was talking about, uh, and um, I was I was really talking to some friends of three uh, young people from Cardiff who uh, went over uh, around the end of uh, 2013 to Syria and joined ISIS. One, Riyadh Khan, was killed by a Royal Air Force drone strike, a targeted strike at him in Syria in August. And uh, the other two were brothers. Uh, they're still alive, as far as we know, Nasser and Asil Mutana. And uh, in the case of Riyadh Khan, he was uh, a, a straight-A student at school. He had at one stage talked about wanting to become the first uh, Britain's first Asian prime minister. Uh, in the case of uh, Nasser Mutana, he had been accepted into medical school. These were all kids who grew up in a relatively uh, poor part of Cardiff, but nonetheless, they weren't classically alienated insofar as they were very very westernized. They uh, were very au okay with technology, with popular culture, with video games particularly, and, uh, and all of that. And what seems to have happened is that in all three cases, they started to go to a particular mosque in Cardiff. And they came under the influence of some radical uh, Salafi preachers, and uh, and these people then, through a combination of uh, of, of the influence of these people, they met in um, in real time, as it were, and various contacts online uh, through social media and through various other um, forms of online communication. They seem then to have made up their minds to go to Syria. Now, talking to their friends and talking also to an imam. Uh, in Cardiff, one of the things that is striking, and it's something that you see uh, all over uh, the phenomenon of various British jihadis who go, they're not necessarily particularly religious people a lot of the time. And one of the things which does seem to drive them is a sense of outrage about what's happening to people in Syria. And an awful lot of the propaganda videos that, uh, that support ISIS are actually not just the bloodthirsty uh, beheadings performed by ISIS, but they're actually, they document an awful lot of the atrocities committed by the Syrian armed forces of Bashar al-Assad against the Sunni Muslim population of, uh, of Syria. And particularly, you see atrocities carried out against women and children. This creates a great sense of outrage, not only among uh, radical or extremist types, but among many people, and particularly among many Muslims in Britain. And then what seems to happen is that some of these uh, young people are, uh, you know, they come under the influence of these extremists, and then they uh, get into this whole uh, this whole business of watching these jihadi videos. Well, this imam said to me, you know, a lot of boys watch jihadi videos. It's kind of like watching porn. And they get into this whole world. And 
Another man I was talking to who deals with, he spends a lot of his time trying to, uh, to lead some young people away from extremism. And he says there's an awful lot of this is caught up with a kind of, he said it's kind of like Game of Thrones uh, meeting Call of Duty, one of these kind of rather violent video games. And that actually they're driven not just by a religious uh, fervor, but also by this kind of political mission to recreate a kind of a 7th century uh, world of kingdoms, of uh, capturing territory, of pillage, of, uh, of all of this. And that's why this whole bloodthirsty cult doesn't seem to make very much sense in any kind of a modern sense of, you know, people feeling uh, uh, alienated within their societies. It seems to be just something something else that's going on. Uh, Suzanne, you, you're living in a sort of lockdown in, in Brussels. So how does that feel? And is it is it as dramatic as it sounds? Um, undoubtedly, it's very tense here and there's visibly less people on the streets. Um, life is going on at around 30%, if you like. Not everything is closed in my own area where I live. For example, all the local shops, the fromageries, dry cleaners, etc., they're all open for business. But I think as you get near the centre, and particularly around the EU institutions, many of those businesses are closed. Obviously, the fact that schools and universities uh, have sh- are shut um, is having a, a big impact on family life for a lot of people here. And the fact the metro isn't running, and this means that simply people cannot get to work. Uh, so once we see those, both the schools and the metro, starting to um, reopen from Wednesday, there probably will be more of a sense of normality. But already a number of meetings, for example, the big privacy conference next week, that's been cancelled in Brussels. huge number of uh, meetings uh, have been uh, cancelled. So this is obviously going to be a huge knock-on effect on, on the local economy. And, and there's been a lot of talk here about Mullenbeck and, and how it's, it's a, it seems to be a, a ghetto full of nothing but, but radicals. Is that, is that true? Um, and is there a typical recruit? And do you see in Dennis's description of the recruitment process in, in uh, Britain a similar phenomenon there or are they different people? Well, I spent quite a bit of time in Monobac over the last few days, and it, it is quite a, a mixed area. It, it's very, very central. Rather than, in contrast to the, for example, the Van Leu in Paris, um, you know, outside the Paris in Paris, and this is very close to the centre and um, very, very nice residential buildings. So, no big council estates. Um, social housing isn't very evident. Um, so, it's also become something of a hipster area. Um, I know some people some young professionals, one Irish person who's bought a house there who lives in the area. So it's very mixed um, and, and to the eye, um, looks relatively um, middle class, even lower middle class. Now, evidently, there is a major problem, though, of an underground uh, Islamic jihadism. Um, some security experts I was speaking to this week said, talked about an Islamic underground in this area. And there is an issue around policing. Now, a lot of people have blamed for, for some years there was quite a liberal mayor in this area. And some people uh, on the right have criticised this policy that there was too much engagement. Um, somebody I was speaking to talked about how uh, policemen were told um, not to smoke uh, in, in case they would offend some of the Muslim community, etc. So there was that policy. But there's a huge soul-searching going on now about this um, radical Islam that's 
evidently there and evidently very powerful. Now, Dennis's descriptions do ring true to a certain extent. I take, for example, there are three brothers that have been at the heart of the Paris attacks, the Abdeslam brothers. One, Brahim, the 31-year-old brother, uh, blew himself up uh, outside the cafe in Paris on Friday. Um, his second brother, Salah Abdeslam, is the fugitive still on the run. And a third brother, Mohammed Abdeslam, he was arrested by police but released last week. And they tell very different stories. Mohammed Abdeslam, who was released, uh, has been working in the local council for the last 10 years. He's, people have been speaking about how they know him, how he's very well respected in work. Uh, Brahimi, for example, though, his ex-wife, he was married for two years, and his ex-wife has spoken to the media and described how he was essentially a layabout, she said, who was not religious and was into a soft, soft drugs um, and petty crime. Um, now, Salah Abdeslam, who has still been searched by police, he is the uh, perpetrator of the attack who didn't detonate a suicide bomb belt, we think. Um, there's been a lot of reports about his background as well. Again, he was in prison for, but again, petty crime, so he was known to police. But also reports now that he frequented gay bars in central Brussels. Um, and again, not very religious at all. So this is kind of the picture we're getting from this particular family, um, which is supposed to kind of give an insight into the, the very different profiles of some of these people. I want to just turn quickly to the political fallout in Britain. It now looks increasingly like Cameron will win support for participation in, in the air wars. Is that right, Dennis? Yes, I think it's uh, it's pretty certain that he will now. It had been the case that uh, there were about 30 conservatives likely to vote against it, and he's got a majority of 12 seats. So he needs to kind of make up the numbers uh, with the opposition. It now looks as if some of those conservatives are now willing to vote in favour of uh, of bombing Syria. And he's also going to get the support probably of the DUP. And pretty certainly quite a lot of uh, Labour MPs are going to support him. Uh, the Labour leadership hasn't quite worked out what they're going to do about it yet. They're going to have a meeting on Thursday. Uh, of the shadow cabinet to try to work out what the line ought to be. And the most likely thing, I, I think, is probably that there will be a free vote because it would be very hard for Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour leader, after everything that he has stood for all his political career, to vote in favour of it. And at the same time, uh, he will not be able to impose uh, a, a three-line whip on uh, MPs uh, and asking them, by asking them to vote against it. So I think it's pretty clear that uh, David Cameron will get his majority in favour of extending the, Euro, the UK operations into Syria. The only issue really, I, I think, is how many Labour MPs support him. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start your free trial site today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code IRISHTIMES to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. And now to another European capital. We tend to forget that the Vatican is both a state and a capital with the usual attributes of statehood, including a diplomatic service, security forces and a judicial system. Last week, the Vatican put on trial five people, including a Monsignor Balda, various aides and two journalists. Over the theft and publication of internal documents which cast a poor light on the Vatican's mismanagement of its own funds. Our Rome correspondent, Paddy Agnew, joins us. Paddy, is the Vatican competent to carry out such a complex trial, and does it have the means to imprison the guilty? Uh, the answer is no. Uh, the brief answer is no. The, the Vatican at the moment, in terms of imprisonment, has only got one uh, one sort of cell. Uh, so 
if, if we're to imprison five people, it would have to uh, make some sort of arrangement with the Italian state and use an Italian state uh, prison. Has it got the, uh, the, the technical means to, to handle the trial itself? Well, the answer is, is, to that is yes, in the sense that two years ago we had the trial of the Pope's daughter, Paolo Gabrielli, who stole uh, documents from uh, Pope Benedict's uh, apartment. And he was uh, tried in a, in a, a very, a very uh, a brief trial, uh, but he was it went through uh, all the sort of legal procedures that um, would are, would be very familiar to anybody who's been through an Italian court proceedings. It has to be said that the uh, the trial that's going on involving these five people is being heard by the Vatican City State Jurisdiction, so it's not being heard by a canon law court. It's not a religious court. It's just uh, state jurisdiction and that state jurisdiction in the Vatican based itself on a 19th century Italian penal code, which is not fantastically similar in a lot of respects to the current Italian penal code, uh, but it's certainly very dissimilar to anything that people would uh, understand from a, an Anglo-Saxon common law uh, criminal code. And where are the judges drawn from? Uh, the judges are... Uh, 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 there's a, a list of Vatican judges. In effect, they're all people... Uh, who work uh, who work in the Italian system as well, uh, and uh, one of the, uh, the, the one of the the modus operandi of this court is that when it's dealing with uh, smaller issues, it's basically used to deal with petty crime, uh, burglary, small stuff, financial uh, petty larceny issues that take place in the everyday in the everyday reality of the Vatican, and there are small cases. But uh, the rea- so when it's dealing with those things, it just meets on a Saturday because the uh, judges in case, uh, are during the Monday to Friday are in Italian courts. Now the, They're only free to actually serve for the Vatican on Saturday. Now, the OSCE, uh, the Organization of Security and Cooperation in Europe, has condemned what it sees as an attack on the freedom of the press and on, on whistleblowing in the uh, charges against the two journalists. Is the Vatican signed up to international human rights uh, treaties? It sounds like a number of international human rights treaties, yes, but it's not. There's nowhere in the, the Vatican that uh, uh, protects uh, freedom of information, and that's one of the points that uh, Emiliano Cittipaldi, author of one of the two books that are, are at the centre of this case, uh, he has said, uh, and he uh, both he and Nuzzi believe that they're being uh, that they're uh, the basic. Uh, uh, right to freedom of opinion is being denied by the Vatican. And also, Fittipaldi points out, it's amazing how the Vatican is very keen to um, investigate uh, both he and Nuzzi for their uh, revelations in the two books, uh, rather than look into the uh, issues that they have revealed, i.e. Uh, a certain amount of mismanagement of Vatican funds, and above all, uh, a, a very strong um, sense of uh, opposition to the reform process uh, that uh, Francis uh, has instigated, oppositions coming from within the Curia. I wanted to come to that precisely now, and that, I mean, the case could be said to be highly political, involving exposing to public light the Vatican's arcane finances, but also um, part of the struggle for control of the Curia by Pope Francis. Can you describe what's at stake, and and is the what the whistleblowers have been doing not in Francis's interest in in supporting reform? Well, that's what, that's what we feel. Uh, looking at what what has been written in the two books, that's the impression you get. We, it, that 
you know, the financial revelations that they come up with in the two books are nothing new. We all knew, we knew about uh, mismanagement of uh, EOR funds. Since uh, the books are written, the review of the EOR's 20,000 private accounts has gone through. They've worked out that there's maybe a dozen of them that are a bit dodgy. They may well involve recycling of uh, organized crime money. They may involve all sorts of different things. But that's not new, uh, even though it's got in the books. What is, uh, appears to be new in the, book, uh, uh, the two books, in their different ways, is that uh, there are figures... Uh, in uh, some of the commissions that are meant to be reforming the Vatican who are not um, are basically trailing their feet a bit and that's the allegation, the most serious allegation the book's like. So you're saying in a way that Francis isn't actually interested in in this case, that it's it's uh, it's it's very much the independent curia uh, um, machine which is which has been trying uh, charging these people. I mean, France, what Francis feels about these cases is, is this. Uh, look, there's nothing new in the financial revelations you've come up with. I knew I was ready for. Uh, we've seen that. We're dealing with that. Uh, but yeah, what he feels is it's most uh, unfortunate that the Vatican appears to be washing a certain amount of uh, dirty linen in the public. And he, he, he feels that, obviously, he feels the only thing he could do without the publicity uh, of the fact that two people that he appointed to one of the... Uh, Reform commissions, or specifically the Economics Reform Commission, that they have uh, appeared to have passed on information to uh, the two reporters. They may well have passed that. Some of them, both, they, they could claim that they passed on that information in the best interest of the reform process. But I think France would say this was not the best, was not the right thing to do, and they shouldn't have been uh, betraying his uh, faith in them. And more broadly speaking, do you think Francis is actually winning the battle for reform? We we saw the Synod and the Family recently, and 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 then there's the internal reform within the Curia. Um, it, it's very that's a sixty-four million dollar question. I would say that he uh, definitely has uh, won some of the reform battle on the question of the Vatican's uh, e- economics, but um, there are a whole. A uh, host of issues that, uh, in the uh, in relation to the church's pastoral approach to all sorts of complex doctrinal problems, where maybe he doesn't uh, he isn't winning the uh, uh, the battle at all. I mean, he's not a pope; he's going to change anything very serious, very fundamental doctrinally. But he does call for a very different pastoral approach, and uh, not everybody's able to adapt to that. And is the sense that, uh, as far as liberals are concerned, there's a, w- a lot of wishful thinking about what his intentions are. Yeah, you, at best you could say that uh, Francis is trying to uh, uh, lead the church, uh, his fellow cardinals, his fellow bishops, and the faithful uh, down a particular road. In other words, to uh, a road that could well one day see fundamental doctrinal changes. I uh, talk about gays, talk about uh, uh, celibacy of the priesthood, woman priest, maybe in a, in a far-off future. But he's trying to lead people there. He's not trying to impose it. He's trying to get people to work, work people around to the point where they might begin to contemplate, the Catholics might begin to contemplate these changes. That, that's the best possible view. The other uh, view, you say, of Francis is that he remains uh, uh, you know, a, a man of his age in his late seventies, who's uh, basically fundamentally doctrinally very conservative, and he won't ever change anything. 
Now, one of the places that we might see this leadership role is in Africa this week, where he's making his first trip. There's been a rise of some 238% in Africa's Catholic population since 1980. But they're very conservative, and they're seen as an obstacle to any reform. On homosexuality, for example, it's, it's illegal in 38 of Africa's 53 nations. Can we expect to see Francis address the issue of tolerance and, and gay rights? Well, that's the $64 million question about this trip. I mean, what will he say about uh, gay rights? Will, you know, will he repeat the sort of remarks he made in the famous remark on the, on the uh, table flight on the way back from uh, Brazil uh, in 2013 when he said, you know, uh, if somebody's a believer, uh, uh, who am I to judge in relation to gays? Uh, will he say that, or uh, will he uphold uh, uh, traditional church teaching, which says that uh, the practice, uh, even though the, uh, the church must have respect for uh, in individual homosexuals, the practice of homosexuality remains the same? Uh, that is going to be. There are many feel that there are many commentators feel that a number of the uh, senior figures in the African church will not appreciate uh, a repetition of his uh, "Who am I to judge?" style. Uh, more inclusive remarks, and they'd much prefer to hear him either not talk about it at all or condemn uh, the practice of homosexuality. Well, what what will be the main message in in Africa? I think the main message will, will, is obvious. It'll be uh, church of the uh, it'll be church of the poor for the poor. That uh, you know, uh, Africa Africa's problems are not just Africa's problems. There are uh, the problems from uh, the whole history of colonization and the continuing uh, what he calls an ideological uh, colonization. One of the things he may well say is that he may well go on about uh, is, uh, and this is an allegation that made by many senior figures in the African church, is that uh, all sorts of, the, of um, first world uh, development aid has been made available to African countries uh, only on, on, in return for a commitment to change uh, those countries' legislation on a variety of sexual mores issues, uh, including homosexuality. Uh, and that's, that's the Vatican denounced that at the Synod here in October, and uh, one expects the Pope will denounce that again. There's another issue, of course, apparently uh, about uh, this trip, and it's an important one, is that uh, it's, it comes against a background of pretty uh, disturbing violence. I mean, you have... Um, Christian militia violence against the Islam, Islamic uh, communities in uh, the Central African Republic, which is the third country it goes to, and then you have Islamic uh, fundamentalist violence in Kenya, which is uh, uh, which is another country it goes to. So uh, it's a it's a trip that is not without uh, a very clear, uh, a very a very clear element of danger. Thank you very much, Paddy. I'm Patrick Smith. Thanks to Michael Jansen, Dennis Staunton, Suzanne Lynch, Paddy Agnew and Sinead O'Shea who produced and Gary White on sound.